we have been approached by companies today who are telling us, listen, we understand that not everybody will go back to the office all the time. So work back in the office where we can control what people do is over. Telling people two days a week you work at home and three days a week you work in the office is also obsolete. It has to be hybrid. And if we want to attract people back in the office, we have to provide them with wellness, well-being, intellectual activities, maybe a restaurant, whatever. And they are offering us to kind of manage part of their space for that and open the space also to the outside work to create those opportunities of collision. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I have an amazing episode for you today. My uh, friend Rich Weissman introduced me to my guest today, pretty much telling me that he would be the perfect SIDCast guest. So I googled the person recommended and discovered, not that I ever doubted Rich, that Philippe Bourguignon has a story that can fill more than one episode of this podcast. The word that comes to mind with Philippe is wisdom. He's thoughtful about business, about the people he advises, and about himself. He's creative, especially in how he thinks about his life. He's incredibly accomplished, a dynamic business career on both sides of the Atlantic. Actually, it's one little example. Philippe was the co-CEO of the World Economic Forum some years ago, you know, Davos. And I didn't even get around to asking him about that in this episode. Why? Because there was and is so much else to talk about. All of this means that it's really hard to tell you, here are the three key insights or stories from this episode, but I'm going to do it for you. But I think three is greatly underselling. Number one, be a dreamer. I mean, I have to share this one because Philippe was once the CEO of Euro Disney. Be a dreamer. And Philippe has written about these ideas in a variety of different places. He's written a book and he sent some notes and blog posts to people in his community. And so I just want to read one little part of it that gets to this point. A few years ago, I had the privilege to attend the Americans for the Arts annual gala where Lady Gaga got the Young Artist Award. She gave an amazing and very thorough and emotional acceptance speech. She said, I dreamed a lot during my childhood, but I didn't know what I would become because I always wanted to be extremely brave and I wanted to be a constant reminder to the universe of what passion looks like, what it sounds like, and what it feels like. And so Philippe says and writes, well, this got me thinking even more. And I got my answer. The real reason I am not retiring is that I'm still a kid. My dad told me repeatedly when I was young to stay a child and keep dreaming rather than becoming serious. And I did. When you have become serious, Philippe says, you're getting old. Well, 50 years later, Philippe says he's still dreaming. I still believe that dreams can transform the world. For me, magic and reality constantly intersect one another. It was this intuitive belief that led me to go in search of the world in the first place. If I've been traveling the world for all these years because the world makes me dream, I'm a traveler and I am a dreamer and I'm a citizen of the world. I am free to know, free to go, free to do and free to be. Isn't it nice? That's something, isn't it? Philippe says and wrote all of that. And he also said, your best asset is not ambition alone, but the ability to dream. Number two, be free. 
For years, Philippe was devoting most of his time to uh, quote-unquote doing things, mostly in his job, but also with his family, as he wrote. And then he says, one day I realized that I no longer needed to do simply for the sake of doing. So I left the action and life in the public eye behind in order to shift from doing to being. And Philippe notes that, you know, he says, I see so many CEOs who get sucked in to the demands of their jobs and rising to a certain level of power, they don't realize the emptiness of their ascension and believe that there is only one choice, get ahead or die. And Philippe says, not so. At one point I realized I was not free because that's exactly the situation he was in. I realized I was not free. Very often we choose to live our lives for something other than ourselves. I decided to be who I was, to assume my passions and to be alive. This is a particularly poignant message for me because it wasn't that long ago that I was being recruited for a particular leadership job and all the recruiters, friends, colleagues included, they kept telling me how good I'd be at it. <laughs> Who doesn't want to hear that, right? You'd be great. You'd be perfect. You've got to do this. But before it went too far, I stopped and I realized that just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because other people want you to do something doesn't mean you have to do that either. That's really what Philippe is talking about here. Be free. What a lesson. Number three, learn to meander. I love that word, meander. Philippe says, use your imagination. Never move in a straight line. Get off the highway and take the side roads, even if you don't know exactly where they're going to lead. An encounter, a discovery, a new idea, or simply a moment of happiness may await you there. Learn to meander, not only when you're out traveling, but most of all, intellectually. We create our lives each day, often in zigzag fashion, never in a straight line. You know, when Philippe wrote that and said that, I just was so struck by it because, you know, one of the themes of the Sidcast week in and week out is how we craft our careers, how we don't go in a straight line and how we are so much better off, even if we don't realize that, especially when we're younger and we're just such a hurry to get to wherever it is we're trying to get to, we don't realize that it's these zigs and these zags, as Philippe says, it's these lefts and these rights. It's the meandering that opens up so many opportunities, so much energy. Philippe says, a career plan with no other end in mind than the career itself is a warped plan. He says that pretty strongly, doesn't he? What are we talking about today? We're talking about wisdom. And it's for all these reasons that I call this episode wisdom and learning from Philippe Bourguignon. I think it's exactly right. Such a fascinating person. Today, he's the vice chairman of Revolution Places. It's a company that's creating a new model for travel and tourism. It promotes and encourages a healthy lifestyle. Philippe has established numerous consumer brands and he serves now as well as the executive co-chairman of Exclusive Resorts, which is this kind of high-end, carefully vetted collection of privately managed multi-million dollar residences and all kinds of iconic destinations paired with highly personalized and intuitive services. Prior to joining Revolution Places, as I said earlier, he was the co-CEO of the Davos-based World Economic Forum. He was also the chairman and chief executive of Club Med, where he engineered a pretty significant turnaround and rebranding, which we do talk about. He worked at Disney for several years, including chairman and chief executive officer of Euro Disney and an executive vice president of Disney Europe. Once again at Euro Disney, I don't know if you remember this, but Euro Disney got off to a very disappointing start. And in the podcast, Philippe describes what he saw and what he did to restructure as fast as possible the Euro Disney opening. I think he came in within the first year and really turned it around. And his first kind of long job in travel was with the Acor Group, which is one of the largest hotel groups in the world. And Philippe traveled the world to learn about that 
You know, he's got so many projects, so many interesting things. He co-founded a concept called Le Shack with his daughter in 2020, right during COVID. And you have to Google Le Shack to see what it is. It's hard to describe, but I know the next time I can and will travel to Paris, I'll be going by there to see it in action. He's a board member of Neiman Marcus. He's on the global board of Operation Hope and is involved in a variety of different other philanthropic efforts. He was a member of the board of directors of Zipcar. He was 11 years on the board of eBay. You kind of get the picture, right? Philippe has been at the center of so many really interesting trends in travel and e-commerce for a long, long time. And today spends a lot of his time advising young entrepreneurs and startup CEOs and teaching them being the wise elder, which I think is really what he talks about today in our episode on the podcast. On a personal note, Philippe is married, father of two kids. I think both of them are now involved in Le Shack. And he's also a dedicated racer of yachts. And along with uh, Bruno Peyron, he set a record in 1996 for crossing the English Channel. So what more do you want? Philippe Bourguignon, great episode. Very excited to introduce him to you and to let you tune into our conversation. Enjoy. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's my pleasure to have Philippe Bourguignon with us today. Hello, Philippe. Hello, Sid. How are you? I'm very good. Very good. How are you? I think you showed me a photo before we started, which... Our podcast listeners won't be able to look at, but it was a beautiful view of the sea. And I guess you're in the south of France now, enjoying a little respite. And so I appreciate you taking some time from off time to chat. You know, there's so many things to talk about, about your career and all the places you've been and worked. And, but I want to start in the early days. You know, when you were growing up, what did you think you would do? You know, some kids grow up, they want to be a fireman. They want to be a soccer player. Did you have something in your head when you were growing up about what you wanted to be or do? Yes, and I changed twice. When I was very young, I wanted to be a captain on a boat, on a cargo. <laughs> Not a yacht or a sailing or a, no, no, or a racing came, boat. This came later. But yes. <laughs> no, I wanted to discover the world by the seas, and I wanted to become a captain on a cargo boat and go from uh, Valparaiso to... <laughs> Where did that come uh, from? I spent my youth in uh, Morocco, in uh, Casablanca. My father worked for a U.S. company, Caterpillar, and he was the head for Africa. Mm-hmm. And we were based in Casablanca. And I truly enjoyed my years, by the way, there. And we were on the ocean. We were living on the ocean. So I was seeing the ocean since I was like four years old, you know. And I think that's where it came from. Then when I did my high school, I started, the husband of my godmother was a surgeon. And I don't know why, but I spent an internship in hospital with him. And I got fascinated. And I started one year in medicine. Oh. Yes, one year. And then it took me a year to decide it was not really well. <laughs> and it was too late for the cargo and everything. So I did something more conventional, which is a master in economics. <laughs> yes. So it's good you discovered the lack of real interest in a medical career early on. There are people that follow, I don't mean medicine, but any career. And years and years later, they look and they wonder, how did I end up here? How did this happen? And that sounds like exactly the opposite of your mindset, as I understand it. What were your parents like? So your father had a significant business job. And what about my mother? So uh, both of them had a very interesting story and obviously a huge influence on me. My father, first of all, left France at 17 years old during the war to join the U.S. Army in Morocco. Hence his fascination for Morocco. And then from Morocco, he moved with the U.S. Army he moved to Algeria 
ended D-Day in Provence, not D-Day in Normandy. There was D-Day on November 6th in Normandy and August 15th in Provence, and he did it in Provence. And he wanted to be a military. However, at the end of the war, he was told that he would never do a huge career because when he was in Morocco, in this U.S. Army Corps, he fought against French people who tried to invade Morocco, but they were from the Vichy regime, you know, the mm-hmm. regime with the Germans. But they were French. So they told him that he would never, mm-hmm. let's say, be promoted in the army. So he decided to go back to Morocco. He loved this country when he was there, and he decided that he had no future in France, and he moved to Morocco, and he joined Caterpillar, this uh, U.S. company, as a salesperson at the beginning and grew up the ranks. So that's my father. My mother was a social assistant. And obviously, when they moved to Morocco, she didn't have really a job. However, when Israel was created, even though she was Catholic, She helped a Jewish organization called the Joint Institute to have Jewish Moroccan people escape from Morocco and go to Israel. So that's my mother and my father. They were exceptional. And my father, the one thing I would like to say, because you asked me what I wanted to do, he kept telling me and my two sisters when we were young that we had to go to university because he didn't do it. And he told us that we had to do it. It was important. Mm. However, he says you should still play as a kid. Even if you learn serious things, you should still play. Because the minute you stop playing, you become serious. And when you become serious, it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> he kept telling us this. Yeah, and you took that to heart, I think. I did. And that's why, again, this desire for travel came from there. Yeah. You know, when you travel, right. you dream. Yeah. Back to your mom for a moment. So why do you think she decided as a Catholic to help Jews leave Morocco? And this was just after the creation of the state of Israel. So it was not a simple, I mean, this was not what too many people were doing, I'm sure, at that time. So I first have to tell you about Morocco, which is a country which I still love very much. In Morocco, my parents put me in a public school, unlike a lot of expatriate people who were going to private schools. So I was in a public school. And when I was a kid, I was at school with Muslims, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish. There was no difference. The world should take example on what it was at the time. I was, when I was young, I was playing rugby. And in a rugby team, there were all those religions. And we were talking uh, rugby and life and things. Not, uh, so that's one. Secondly, Jewish people were very respected in Morocco. And you had in a city like Fez, or even in Marrakesh, you had those Jewish neighborhoods and whatever, but very respected and very integrated, okay? But the creation of Israel created some tension. And Morocco was afraid that if all the Jewish were holding the trade, the Jewish came to Morocco at a time where the caravans were going from Senegal all the way up to Europe through Spain and Morocco. And the Jewish established trade counters, and they were very key in this trade between Senegal, you know, let's say Western Africa and Europe. So the Jewish people pretty much controlled the trade in Morocco and the Moroccan government, the king, was very nervous that if they all went to Israel, it would. So basically there was no persecution, but they were not welcome to leave. 
So I don't know how it came up. I remember that with my father, we were very nervous at night because she was going on the seashore and helping people to boat. <laughs> to wow. Live on boats, yes. Did she ever talk about it afterwards? Oh, she talked about it and she got a book. I offered it to uh, one of my close friends in Washington, who, by the way, is Ron Klein and is now the chief of staff of Joe Biden. And uh, Golda Meir later offered her like an amazing book on the story of Israel. But it's not only a book. Part of it was handwritten. It was a leather cover with a little cup. I'm a little moved when I talk about it. Yeah, of course. Is there a place that people could find this or read about this and learn more about it? I don't know. I did not check. I didn't go back. My two parents passed away. So, you know, yeah. trying to live yeah. with it a few years ago. Well, it's a memory that you have and yeah. cherish and share, yeah. which is important. Uh, uh, but it's the Joint Institute. Maybe I should do some search on the Joint Institute and what they do in Morocco at the time. Yeah, and I'm sure there's, you know, you can Google anything now, and I bet there's a lot of yeah, information yeah. available about this, and maybe some scholars that have written about it. So we see adventure, courage, travel, play. These are the themes. These are the words that I'm getting from here early, mm -hmm. you know, your description of some of those early days. And you went pretty quickly, I think, into the hotel and travel business. Now, you've had a lot of jobs and multiple jobs at the same time. So I'm going to ask you, maybe it's an impossible question, but what was your, or has been your favorite job ever? Uh, this one is a question I never answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a few questions. I'll, I'll come to that. But, uh, you know, I followed my father's advice on a number of occasions, but I did not follow his advice once. He told me that for my first job, the job was not interesting. I should take the highest paid jobs because at the time, your first pay was following up for the rest of your life. You know, you were increased like 5% or 10% based on what you were making. It was a seniority system almost. Step by seniority step. system at the time, yes. So he said, well, take the job which pays the most and you mm -hmm. change after two years and uh, you do something else. I did not follow his advice. I wanted to find a job allowing me to travel. And I happened to meet two people who created a hotel company. I was not a hotel guy, not at all, but they created a hotel company and they had a few units in France, like six hotels in France only. And they were very, very visionary and, how can I say, ambitious. And they wanted to grow internationally. And when I met with them, because I spoke some Arabic, which I learned in Morocco when I was young, and obviously I lived abroad, and I spoke English because maybe we'll talk about it, but I spent a few months in Austin, Texas at the end of my master. And they offered me to start development for them in the Middle East. And if you remember, this was in 1973. 1973 was the independence of the Gulf, you know, of states like Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Bahrain, became independent from the British. It's the time where oil started climbing up, you know, and after the war, six days, the war, Egypt and Israel, they told me, well, would you be interested to develop our company in the Middle East? I was very young. I had very limited experience. And by the way, they taught me how you should trust young people. So basically, I moved to Beirut. I lived in Beirut between 1974 and early 1976, because in the meantime, the war started in Lebanon in April 75. And I traveled all those countries from Iran to Iraq, from Iraq to Egypt, to Syria, Jordan, Kuwait, the Gulf, 
what else? All those countries. It was fascinating. I loved it. Mm. And I was a little unconscious. And we were, by the way, the company is called Accor now. And because I was US companies, the companies like Hilton, like Holiday Inn, which was very aggressive at the time in terms of development, they were coming with lawyers, architects, whatsoever. Myself, I was on my own. We would sign contracts of three pages. <laughs> and, so and, this is like a startup mentality. Oh, absolutely, completely, yes. Yeah, yeah. I really loved it. That's how I came to the hotel business. Then I was successful there. I did eight hotels in the first year, which opened the next year. So I was expanded. My responsibility was expanded to Asia. So I had Middle East and Asia, and I was traveling all the way to Manila in the Philippines, not in China yet. But I really made my goal, which was to travel and meet people and mm -hmm. meet very interesting people, whether it is again in uh, Iraq, in Iran, in uh, Singapore, in Thailand, in Indonesia, they were all very different. And you are confronted to different cultures, to different mm -hmm. spirits, to uh, different environments different social life. I truly loved it. And so you had to adjust to a lot of different languages and cultures. And of course, Arabic in the Middle East was a commonality, but as you go into Asia, I suppose English was used more than anything else. Uh, oh, English, common... English was the language because even Arabic, the Arabic you learn in Morocco mm -hmm. is called dialect Arabic versus classical Arabic, which is mm -hmm. spoken in uh, Egypt, Syria, and so on. So I can understand. I could write somehow. I could express myself simple words. I made progress, obviously, in Arabic, but English was the main language. Yeah. So you had this job, as you said, you were quite young and they took a chance on you. They saw something in you and it's affected kind of your thinking about other young people. But did you ever doubt yourself? Were you ever afraid that you couldn't do this? Did it even cross your mind or you just went well, to work? It was crossing my mind every day. <laughs> no, 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 but then you get confident because, again, you are successful. But my first trips, I could go on for so long, so I don't yeah, want to. Yeah. But no, no, but clearly I was very nervous, but I had this level of unconsciousness. I really believe, by the way, that a good businessman need to have a certain level of unconsciousness. If you are too conscious, you don't take risks. Mm -hmm. So let's see if we understand what that means. So conscious means deliberate, hyper-rational, and unconscious means organic, natural, doing more than thinking. Is that a good way to... Yeah, to no, exactly. Yes, yes. And unconscious is you have no doubts. Normally, everybody tell you you should always have doubts. What if and what if? When you are a little unconscious, there is no what if. You would just go for it. You just go for it. Yes, yeah, it's actually quite an interesting dichotomy. And I think you've written about this as well. And it's been one of the maybe one of the principles that you've advocated for yourself and for others. So how do you do that? <laughs> for you, it came natural, let's say, or you learned how to do it. But there's a lot of young people. I'll just tell you that, you know, teaching MBA students, average age is 28 or 30 when they graduate. They're very smart. They're very talented. They're going to be successful. But there are a number of them that definitely are afraid. Not only do they doubt themselves, you know, the imposter syndrome. Deep down, they wonder if they really deserve to have the seat, to have the job. 
and they fight against it. And particularly, this is more true for women and minorities than others, but it's true generally. And it's become a topic of conversation with my students. Yeah. yeah but so, you know, uh, Seed, first, you need to have good teachers, people like you. Yeah. But then you need to have good leaders. And the luck of my life is that all the leaders I worked with, whether it is with Accor, then with Disney, and so on, were amazing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul de Bruyne and Gérard Pélisson, the two founders of Accor, taught me everything. And mm. if I was, again, a little unconscious, it's because they allowed me to be so. They allowed me to take risk. They would not scream at me when I failed. You know, they would encourage me. They would encourage you to take yeah. a risk, and even if it led to failure. Exactly. You know, one thing which really, by the way, I'm using a lot in the current times with this pandemic, with uh, some of our CEOs, you know, now that I am in the venture capital type thing, Mm -hmm. is after I was in Egypt, in Cairo, when it got bombarded by Israel, you know, to end the war of six days, remember? The war of 67 or 73? 73. 73. Yeah, so that was the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War, exactly. Okay, and so I was in Cairo. I was negotiating a deal, and at the time, there was no cell phone. I got stuck in Cairo for like three weeks without any communication and whatever. And I was mortified because I had a number of projects going on elsewhere in the Middle East, and I couldn't go out and so on. And so when I went out, I flew back to Paris to first relax a little bit and have discussion with my two co-founders again, particularly one, Gérard Pélisson. When I told him something I wanted to do, he said, Flip, it is better to be alive in mediocre health than dead in good health. So, <laughs> so keep. T- <laughs> and this one, I never forget. And by the way, you know, in a lot of our companies, that's what we're doing today. We are pushing our CEOs, founders of companies and so on. I'm pushing them to maybe alienate the future a little bit, but get out of the crisis alive, even yeah. if it in mediocre health, rather than die during the crisis. So, yeah, practically speaking, that means focus on short-term survival for sure, but the short-term needs put to the side longer-term plans and actions. That's what no, you're talking it, about. Yes, it is surviving short-term, but keeping your vision. Not lose track of ultimately where you want to go, but be more flexible on the way to get there, if you want. Yeah, which makes me think of something else that you've talked about and written about. It sounds like a zigzag strategy. It's (laughs) a zigzag strategy. A zigzag strategy, which is a term you've used or an adjective you use to describe careers, actually. Careers, well, because I don't think that careers are built in a straight line. By the way, I don't believe in straight lines. You don't believe in straight lines at all. I love that. (laughs) No. Americans believe in straight lines. America is the only country which has built a city based on straight lines over 14 hills called San Francisco. Elsewhere, they would turn around the hills. Look at San Francisco. Straight lines to be efficient. Yes. Straight line is efficient. Right. But then you have this incredible steep (laughs) hills you're walking on (laughs) when you get to uh, uh, Pacific Heights. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. I had a very interesting discussion. I cannot tell you with who, but he's a close friend of mine. He has a prominent job in the US today. And each time you would promote him, he would ask you, what is next? I said, well, next? (laughs) You may have to wait like two years. We'll discuss next then. Because he wanted to know, you know, that's what I call straight line. 
in life, you meander. You don't go straight. Those people who want to go straight, they lose opportunities. Because they're focused on the end of that line. Yes. And the extension of the line. But opportunities might come up at the side of the road that if you're not looking sideways, you won't see it. Exactly. And doing that is not being opportunist. The analogy I take, it's like the people who are on straight line, it's like a cow in a field watching yeah. a train passing by without trying to catch the train. Well, sometimes if the train appears to be nice, you want to catch it, even yeah. if you don't know where the train is leading you. Yeah. My version of that, it's not exactly the same, but it's about linear thinking. Yes. Maybe it is very similar. And linearity. And I was just talking about it with a group recently. I'm not sure what's linear in life and what's linear in leadership, but yet many people think a lot is linear. For example, if something is good for you, some technique, some attribute, some characteristic, then a little bit more is better and even more is better and better and better. So for example, people often say you have to be confident to be a leader. Well, yeah, okay. But you could have so much confidence that you become arrogant, that you're no longer listening to anyone. And so actually what is valuable is a combination of confidence and humility. And you could even argue that while many people talk about humility, certainly in the last years, we would say humility is good, a little bit more is good. But I could imagine, I wonder whether you agree or not, that you could become so humble that the whole world will pass you by and you'll never be able to take the reins of having a big impact. In other words, you have to balance the opposites. I agree with you, but I would challenge you saying you can be humble and still have aggressive goals. Yes. For me, a person with a big ego mm -hmm. obviously is not humble. And very often those people with a big ego, they have such a big ego that they don't even see or understand the people in front of them. Humble people can absorb a lot from their environment, the people they meet, what they see in the street, everything. When they travel, yeah, they a... absorb, while somebody who is mm -hmm. very, very egomaniac doesn't see anything. Yeah, it is related. gets across their mind. Yes, it actually is related a little bit to what you said earlier about the conscious and the unconscious and the way you described it. And it has to do with openness to change, I think, and openness to experiences, which yes. I think is maybe one of the hallmarks of great, well, I was going to say great leadership, but maybe we would say great life as well. You've written these notes, occasional notes, and of course, a book, Hop. And I was looking at some of it. It's really interesting. And I'm thinking I should share this with my students. I want to read one or two little sentences and then maybe ask you to elaborate a little bit, or maybe even if there's an example from your own career, your own life, to an experience. You wrote, experience is change's worst enemy because it encourages us to seek the comfort of habit. And yet to live is to change. We wake up different each day. Yes, we do. Experience is like a light on the back of a train. It lights the back track. Behind us. Yes. Behind where have you us. Been? Yeah. Okay. While vision lights the tracks ahead where you're not sure exactly where you're going. So it's very hard to forget your experience. Your experience is here. It's now entrenched in your mind. So myself, can I tell you a little story? Because this uh, story changed my life and it leads Absolutely. to this discussion. So I keep saying, by the way, that life is made of a number of things, but two important things are encounters and moments. I've been lucky enough to encounter a Chinese person from Singapore, an amazing person. His name is Adrian Zeka, way back. And we were partner in business when I was Accor in Asia, okay? One day, we were flying between Chiang Mai in Thailand and Singapore, and he was telling me in the plane that I was not doing very well. And I told him, 
No, I'm doing pretty well. He said, no, Philippe, no, you're not doing very well. I said, why do you say that? And he kept insisting. And he says, well, you should take two days off and reflect on yourself. Hmm. I said, well, I don't have the time. And he told me, you're wrong. Time creates time. So I'm going to force you. I have this beautiful home in Indonesia. It's an old Buddhist temple. You go there for 48 hours, you cancel your meetings. So I did, forced. And it's the best thing which I ever did in my life. Since then, I'm taking a day and a half to two days off every six to eight weeks just to be with myself elsewhere. Currently, obviously, with the pandemic, I do it at home. <laughs> you do but a I lot used of that. To, I used to take advantage of a trip to stay another day or two somewhere and not do emails and not do, but just thinking. And that's where you get rid of experience. It's because you can pause. It's because you can look at yourself, because you can reflect, because you can look at how stupid you were in this meeting or this decision you made three months ago, which is wrong and so on. So how do you get not rid of experience? Experience mm -hmm. is good, but yeah. how can you go beyond experience to be more innovative and more creative, which is the beginning of our discussion? You do it by, again, reflecting on yourself and taking time for yourself, time to think. I've been doing this for 40 years, Sid. Wow. I assume then that you advocate this for many other people, including, you know, in your role in venture capital, many CEOs that you play a role in mentoring and yes. supporting. So, so. Um, and they're working day and night, they're going to tell you, and probably they are. And so they're a tough audience for this message in the same way that you were a tough audience. <laughs> you were a tough audience, you know, 40 years ago when your business colleague told you the same thing. Yes, but I must admit, however, that the speed of the world at the time was not what it is today. And it's much more difficult to do it today. The beauty is that I've reached an age where my career is behind me and I do only things I like with people I like and I take the time. And if, I, if you are now the founder of one of those startups, and you have to produce results. The decision to take time is more difficult. However, I'm successful in, let's say, a solid half of them, making <laughs> them take a little time. Yes. That's a pretty good hit rate, I think, yeah. uh, for that audience. Yeah. 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 So you really do enjoy your role now in the venture capital side because you're working with younger entrepreneurs, leaders, building something in the way that you in the past have built things. Is this about mentorship then? Is this what it means to you? And is this the thing that you find really, really oh, personally generative? Uh, yeah, no, it's much more than that. So I've been doing it now for 16 years and it's one of the best decisions I ever made to join Steve Case at Revolution and be in this amazing adventure. The reason is that when you are, how old I was at the time, I was like 57, 58 when we started. And the people I work with were in their 20s, late 20s. So mm. it was my first time, you know, dealing with a crowd of young people. I did not even understand what they were saying. So I was taking a lot of notes in meetings Then I was trying to understand after. But as you exactly pointed out, it took me back to my accord time in the Middle East and in Asia. Mm -hmm. It took me by it at that time where I had initiative, where I didn't have a great, huge corporate staff and you want to do something, you press a button, you have eight people in your office and you delegate and whatever. All of a sudden, you are back on your own, dealing with those people, sourcing new companies and so on. 
And at that time, I was feeling more like a carton of milk with an expiration date. Yes. But after I joined Revolution, I became like a bottle of old wine. <laughs> getting better with age. So it's a both way. It's, I learned so much from all those people, my partners, as well as all those founders and executives in those startups we invested in. At the same time, I was bringing them a lot also. It's a true exchange, you know, sharing, let's say, their very factual intelligence with more of my emotional intelligence. I'm so much better today than I was 15 years ago. I am. I grew up the, that time. It's not the opposite. And I hope that I contributed a lot to those founders of companies, entrepreneurs. You mentioned that, you know, there was a stage where you had the big staff and you called people and you could delegate effectively, which is what people do in bigger companies the higher up you go, of course. I'd like to ask you about maybe two of those jobs. One at Club Med, where you're really a turnaround person, and then you're running Euro Disney and a senior executive in Disney in Europe as well. Maybe with Club Med first, which is a legendary brand. You know, people, everyone knows Club Med, but not everybody knows that they were really in big, big trouble at one point in time. And wonder if you could take us through, in brief, what you saw and what you did to help turn around Club Med. So Club Med obviously was a phenomenal brand and Club Med was synonymous with freedom. You know, when Gérard Blitz created it and then Gilbert Higano joined him, it was freedom to cross border in Europe without weapons after the war in 1950. It was freedom to have some German couples with some Belgian couples, some French, some British around the same fireplace in Corfu, Greece. So that's how Club Med started. Yeah, that's an and image then, people don't uh, don't realize, actually. You know, the no, time exactly. of its founding, yeah. as you just shared, post-war, yeah, that was a powerful vision. Yes, and it was the first time that people were taking vacation amongst, you know, different nationalities and yeah. so on again after mm -hmm. the war. Then it becomes more like sexual freedom, you know, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. It went with the 60s and then family freedom in the 70s, 80s. Club Med got in some trouble in the early 90s because of the Iraq war. A lot of Club Meds were located in Tunisia, Morocco, you know, Turkey, Egypt, and so on, which were Arab countries. And there was a reluctance from Europeans to go down, spend vacation in those countries at the time. There was this mm -hmm. first Iraq war. I'm talking the, 2000 the war. And, oh, with uh, no, the, the 1990s. Yes, it was, right. It was George Bush 41. It was the uh, senior George Bush, that's right. After Iraq invaded Kuwait. So that's how Club Med got in trouble. But at the same time, it kind of lost his soul for like 10 years. They were really struggling with finance and self. They were really focused on real estate, which is normal after a big crisis. However, again, there need to be in brands like this a level of passion, a level of the brand reflects who you are, but they lost who they were. And, you know, it's interesting that when I took my job, I put a number of pictures on the wall and I asked the Club Med team here, tell me which pictures are for Club Med. And they watched and they said, well, all of them. And they were palm trees, beautiful beach, a couple hand in hand back with the palm trees on the left, people swimming in a beautiful pool and so on and so forth. And I told them, well, none of them are from Club Med. Competition 
as calm and Club Med is like everybody else. We need to reinvent mm-hmm. Club Med. So at first, we did an economic turnaround. We changed, obviously, the way to communicate about Club Med. We upgraded, we reinvested in the facilities and so on. But more importantly, we rejuvenated the image. Okay, And then we get to 2000 at a time where we had to really, we were strong enough financially to change Club Med completely and move into what I call the well-being space. Club Med should have been or should have incarnated well-being. Which you see as a theme today, a central theme in travel. Today, definitely. But uh, remember, not in 99, 2000. So we prepared a plan. We were about to launch the plan when September 11 happened. We are back on our feet. We put the EBITDA moved from minus 250 to plus 700 million. Not bad. In uh, three years, 97, 2000. So we were really now starting to do the real transformation of Club Med. Mm-hmm. But September 11 happened. And after September 11, obviously, we lost half of our business overnight. We had to rebuild the business slowly but surely. And then the board got divided because the stock dropped, obviously. And I wanted to take Club Med private to do this transformation. The board disagreed. There was a crisis and I left Club Med. Wow. You know, the one thing that pops in my head when you mentioned, you know, you said 9-11, you talked about the first Iraq war. I don't know. The travel business is a pretty vulnerable business to global disruption. I mean, the pandemic is the obvious gigantic one we're living through now and travel disintegrated, really. The airlines around the world were in big trouble. I mean, it's really a vulnerable industry. It is. It is. And that's what's painful, particularly on, again, companies which are public companies. The difference today or 10 years ago with, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago, if let's say in 1980, there was a problem, riots, let's say in Fiji, or a strike in Bali, or some insurgency in Indonesia, okay? It would affect the business in Indonesia or in Fiji. If you have the same today, it would affect the business from Australia all the way to Singapore because of the way media, you know, like media, blows the yeah, news, yeah, yes. Yeah. Look, today, who would go in Hong Kong knowing what's happening in Hong Kong beyond the pandemic? If you had had to organize with China, yes. If you had to organize a convention or a meeting or a forum, would you do it in Hong Kong? Probably not. So, yes, it's affecting travel, vacation and so on. But by the way, this crisis, we see a return toward uh, two things, more domestic travel and less pyjama tours as I call them, which I don't like. Pijama Tour is an American leaving New York on a Saturday, coming back a week later after going to Florence, Venice, Vienna, Austria, London, <laughs> yes, Paris. Yes, I get it. I get it. Barely one night in a place and, okay. uh, you, and you I do hope, the city, yeah, in quotes. I hope, <laughs> I hope this is over. And people who return to more natural, more discovery, more yes. authentic experiences. That's the good news. Yeah, I think that is happening and will happen, especially, you know, what people have been through around the world and continue to be. I mean, it's not over everywhere for sure, the pandemic, but it's been a time you talk about reflection, forced reflection, when you're staying home and you're afraid and you're thinking. And many people are thinking about what do they want to do with their lives and the rest of their lives. And 
I used to maybe not travel as much as you traveled, but I traveled a lot for you know speaking engagements and consulting and all over. And I'm not actually that interested in going back to that pace. I want to continue to see and be places where I have friends and it's a beautiful place to be, but there's a lot of places I'm not interested in. And I don't know whether I would have had that revelation now if it wasn't for being forced to. You know what I mean? Yes. So I mentioned Euro Disney. So tell me a little bit about that. Was that in the Michael Eisner era or before? It was pure Michael Eisner. So Michael Eisner hired me back in 1988. I was at Accor, this company I really enjoyed. I worked 14 years at Accor. You know, again, it made me who I am today. What I learned with those two founders, what I learned in the Middle East, in Asia, and then in North America, because I became the head of North America. But there is a time where we're talking about change. You need a change. It's not change for change, but after 14 years, there was much less challenges. And I happened to meet with Michael Eisner, and they were looking for somebody to run something called Disney Development Company, particularly international, which uh, Disney Development Company was doing the conception and building and development of whatever is outside of the theme parks. So I started that. And obviously, I was very involved in the conception of Euro Disney, but I was not the boss of Euro Disney. Then Euro Disney opens, and it's a big problem. We can talk about this because it's very interesting. And so there are two things interesting. One is I did a big mistake, a big mistake around the opening. Three months after the opening, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, who was the CEO at the time, was an yeah. amazing man also, yes. Frank. They called me, I flew to Los Angeles, and they told me, Philippe, we would like to propose you to become CEO of Euro Disney. This is after three months that it was open? It was about three months after, yes. Yes. We have problems there, and we think that you can uh, deal with it. And I said, well, listen, you took away my options this year and my bonus because I did a mistake. Why do you promote me? He says, because you are better after you did your mistake. (laughs) And, you know, that's something which is very typically American, and that's one of the reasons I truly like America. While failure in Europe is seen as a failure, mm-hmm. it's hard to recover from a failure in Europe. That's so really anyway. interesting. Do you think this has something to do with the startup culture in America compared to Europe? I mean, there's parts of Europe, the Scandinavia is very impressive, London area, but there's nothing like a Silicon Valley. There's nothing like the area around MIT and life sciences where failure, you know, in the same way you just described, it's not a good thing to fail, but if you're learning from it, okay. And in Europe, as you just described, that's it. Do you think that has something to do with the culture and why it is in the U.S.? That, no, I, mean, I think there's lots of other of, factors, but... I think it's part of the American culture. Yeah, yeah, because in you America... Know, I, so- I, uh, I'm sorry we're going to diverge from the Euro Disney subject, but I say I'm a frustrated of the Atlantic. When I'm in France, I miss the United States terribly. And when I'm in the United States, I miss France terribly. Yeah. And I would love to uh, end up my life, you know, one foot on each side of the ocean. <laughs> but anyway, so that's one of my goals. But very often I'm asked, what are the differences? So I can give you a full presentation, would take an hour. I will just give you the introduction of my presentation. It's a French mother who take her kid in a park next to home at the Luxembourg Garden in the center of Paris. And before the kids go and play with other kids, she tells him, don't talk to somebody you don't know. Be careful not to run too fast. Keep your sweater because you're going to be cold. And she kept telling him things. And the boy, after that, he takes a 10 minutes lecture. He goes 
play with the kids. And like everybody else, he falls down, his knee is bleeding, he goes back crying to his mother, and his mother told him, you see, I told you, you should not have run. You are like your father. <laughs> and then you have the American mother who is in Central Park. And same thing, she takes uh, the same boy, same age, mm -hmm. to play with other kids. And when she arrives, she says, well, uh, go run and have fun. And the kids go run and have fun. And he falls like the French kid. And he bleeds like the French kid, come back crying. And she tells him, well, I saw you. It's because you did this, this and that. Don't do it again. So it's part of the culture. And then your education is the same at school. I could go on and on. And then it's yeah. the same in companies. Okay. Now, obviously, globalization has changed management culture tremendously. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there is more, I would say, spirit of entrepreneurship today in any company on the planet. So I'm coming back to this lady offered me this job. And for me, it means moving back to France. I was in Los Angeles with my wife and my two kids. And uh, we moved back to Paris. And there were a number of things wrong. One of them was that we were having 8 million visitors in annual terms. The capacity of the park was 12 million. And to start making money, we needed 14 million. <laughs> that, that arithmetic doesn't yeah. seem to work too yeah. well. <laughs> so there was an arithmetic problem. Okay, yes. that's one. So there was not enough capacity. We had to invest even more at the time where we had already too much debt. So this was the equation. At the mm -hmm. same time, the other problem, why did we have 8 million? Because Europeans, I would say except British, who are more exposed to U.S. culture, were kind of reluctant at the U.S. culture. And the reason is that the communication of Disney pre-opening was not the right one. It was not the Disney experience. It was, we planted 40,000 trees. We have, the park is 2,000 acres. We have 65 rides. The park is open eight hours a day. It mm -hmm. was all factual. They were selling like commodity. And to illustrate it, the people on the picture were Americans dressed the same way you are dressed in America. I'm not criticizing the way you dress, but you are dressed differently. Yes, so, I noticed that. <laughs> so people could not see themselves there. Yeah. No emotional so we, connection, really. No emotional connection. So the one thing, I'm still very emotional about it. We stopped every advertising and we did only one piece of ad, which and we hammered the market. In other words, we went very intense. And it was a godfather with his granddaughter dancing on the street, but you did not know where they were. And then the granddaughter, while dancing with the grandfather, would say, I don't know how old my grandfather is, 55, 75, 95, but he's younger today. And then you could see Main Street. Beautiful. Emotions. Emotions. And it changed everything on the perception. Yeah. That's a beautiful ad. Yeah. I can no, see no, it. Uh, I can feel it. Even your description, oh, I could feel it. My description, I'm always moved when I talk about I, that. I understand. Because, I, uh, I, we, I feel we the do, same okay. thing. Wonderful. It was. And so since then, by the way, I've been fighting with marketing agencies or ad agencies on what they call branding. Everybody talks branding. And a lot of agencies force, or let's say a lot of clients of agencies accept to have a brand Bible. And all of a sudden... The brand is driving the decisions in the company, while the brand should be the expression of what the company is. 
And are you finding that that's become a bigger problem in terms of how marketing and oh, advertising? Every, uh, you see it every day. Yeah. You see it every day and everything becomes a commodity. You know, coming back to Accor at my beginning, Paul Dubreuil in the, the hotels we were building at the beginning were small hotels, 150 rooms. The general manager had no office, no office. And Paul Dubreuil's decision was that the general manager's office was the lobby so that he could meet the clients, see them, talk to them at the restaurants, get to know them rather than looking at the computer, who you are and so on. So a hotel is hospitality. You should be a host. Today, hotels look at hotel advertising. They advertise everything like a commodity. You see, I'm not criticizing anybody. They are all the same, whether it's Accor, whether it's the Marriott Group. They are fighting on having 50 brands each. And it's grand, but who knows the difference between two brands, except they will explain that the room is a little bigger here or there. Myself, I have a hotel in every city I go to, Sid. I try to find a hotel where people get to know me. I go to Denver regularly, and there is an amazing hotel there, which is an old, let's say, mining type office building converted into a hotel. It's owned by a family. The Germain in Montreal, same thing, and so on. And those hotels have a soul. They don't need a loyalty program for me to come back. The experience I get there is good enough that I don't need points to come back. So here's the question. Can you scale that? It could be a family-run hotel. Well, a family's not going to run 20 and 100 and 1,000 hotels. I mean, you're trying to do that as well in some of the other work you've been doing. So how yes. does that happen? Yeah, you can absolutely scale it. Do you know, for instance, that in New York, I'm talking pre-COVID, obviously, mm -hmm. okay? In 2019, was open one major brand hotel in New York City and 55 what's called lifestyle hotels either part of a network or independent. That's interesting. And by the way, post-COVID, those hotels are the ones catching up the fastest. And so these, you call them lifestyle hotels? Lifestyle hotels, like, I don't know, again, the Germain, the, the Ace Hotel in New York. In the lobby, there is no difference between the bar, the reception, the restaurant. I know. Uh, I've been in that one on uh, 27th or 29th Street, 20, I think. 29th Street. 29th exactly. Street. In and fact, you walk uh, in the lobby yeah. and it's packed with people where any hotel lobby is empty. Yeah, it's packed with people and lots of young people doing whatever they're doing. Many of them appear to be entrepreneurially oriented. Yes. I actually ended up... So I live in New York part of the year. When I was writing my last book, I went to the Ace Hotel whenever I was in New York to do some of the writing because I like the atmosphere. You the know, atmosphere. It's a creative exactly. atmosphere. Yes. It's funny you mentioned that one. You're involved with exclusive resorts. I think it's not just involved. You're the chairman. And that's a little bit different model where people go and rent, I guess. Big houses or beautiful homes in different places. Very high end, but it's all part of a subscription model, I guess. You pay a yearly membership, like a golf course, golf club. You got to buy in to get in. How is that concept? And is that one that's taken off now or it's still kind of more niche? No, well, it's still a niche because it's an expensive type of vacation. So it's addressing only like, you know, this uh, one, one and a half percent of very high end individuals. So let me start with the subscription model. Subscription, there are a number of things which at the turn of the century, I'm talking 95, 2000. When you talk turn of century, it's always remind me of 1900. <laughs> <laughs> at the turn of the century, a lot of people are discovering things now with the pandemic, which in fact were solid trends way before. 
like sharing, like subscription models. People today, for instance, a number of women don't buy dresses anymore. They have only a sport casual dress. And if they go out for a drink, I'm not talking a wedding. I'm just taking a dinner or something. They can rent it to run the runway. Yeah. And they have a subscription model where you pay and you can rent as many as you want in the month. Mm -hmm. So subscription is a substantial sociological evolution. And we've seen it ourselves at Revolution for the last 10, 15 years. That's why we liked the model of exclusive resort, because it's a club and therefore it's a subscription. You pay an access fee, you know, an initiation fee, and then you pay a subscription every year. It's called dues. And it provides you access to a selection of beautiful homes with full hotel service. So it's like being in a hotel, except you are in your own home. You can have your private chef, you can have delivery, you can have dresses, delivery, yeah, whatever is there. You can book excursions, activities, whatever. So it's like being in a hotel, except it's much more intimate, obviously. So uh, this uh, company has been very successful, went through a little difficult period in 2008-9 because of the crisis, obviously, and has recovered since then. And what's very interesting is that I would say we have a second or third life with this pandemic because we felt at the beginning that we should stop selling in a proactive way and save costs like everybody did and so on. But we discovered that there is an appetite for this product. And in fact, the last six months are the two best quarters we had in 10 years. You know, I'm not, I'm not surprised because people want to be away from anyone else and still be able to travel and experience. And this yes, is and most, uh, so let's say about 80% of what you can access are homes, mostly from Canada to Costa Rica, Hawaii to the Caribbean. So I would say North American zone, mostly, some in Europe. But you also have what we call experiences with beautiful experiences like safaris, private jet around the world, not pyjama tours as I described, right? Like really uh, nice ones, stays in Italy or whatever. And so obviously those experiences are a little soft at the time, but we have more demands on the homes that we can provide. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's very, doing very well. We're very happy. Um, we've been talking for over an hour and I feel uh, I like, that. really feel like there's so much more I want to cover. I might ask you to come back some other time to keep the conversation going. But there's two things. I wouldn't even talk about Davos, which is a big topic in and of itself. But there's two things that I want to ask you about. One is a little project with your daughter called Le Chac in Paris Chac. that I saw the video and I said, next time I go to Paris, I've got to go see this. It looks like super cool. Maybe you could share a little bit about what that idea is and how that's going. And then one last question about advice. So let me hold off on the last question and maybe ask you to share a little bit about, and also working with your daughter, partnering with your daughter must be just something very special. Okay, so uh, Le Chac, my daughter came to me, I would say three, four years ago. We were on vacation together because I'll come back to that. We have a tradition from difficult times to take uh, vacations every year together. Okay, the whole family. And she had a great job. She was chief digital officer of a major hotel company. Accor, even though she hates when I say because she went there on her own, not because she was the daughter of Philippe Bourguignon. <laughs> and she did it on her married name so that nobody could connect. Okay, the we, we're, anyway. we're making that crystal clear for everybody, <laughs> including her when so, she listens. Including her. 
So anyway, she came to me and she says, well, you know, you are helping a number of entrepreneurs in the United States. Then you are coaching them and so on. You are financing them. Why don't you do the same for me? Why not? So we started working on an idea and we've been doing a lot of thinking and so on. And we took those trends we in fact talked about. Again, sharing subscription, there is less emotion today. It's not because you send an emoji on your iPhone. There is more emotion in your relationship with your iPhone that eye contact like you and I are seeing each other now. And therefore, you mm -hmm. need to create places where people can collide. So it's not a place where you work. It's not a place for entertainment. It's not a place where you eat. It's not a place where you drink. It's not a place for wellness well-being. It's all of that at the same time. And therefore, if you come there to work, you're going to work next or adjacent to other people, you will not have an opportunity to meet otherwise. Mm -hmm. If you go at the restaurant at lunch, you will be sitting at the table with somebody you don't know as your neighbor. And somebody you didn't know is becoming your friend. And somebody mm -hmm. who is already a friend becomes family. It's a place of connections. So obviously, we were supposed to open on March 2020, so, uh, which good, is... Good timing. When, <laughs> no, when the first confinement started, <laughs> the worst. so we could not open. Yes, the worst. Then, obviously, it was difficult. But we can see today where it's reopening slowly but surely. So first, all of the people working there are still working there every day. So that's the good news. A uh, number of small meetings are also taking place. We cannot open the restaurant, which is a key part of the experience. We can do some wellness. But we are very anxious because I'm looking at my calendar. Today, we are on June 4th. And on June 9th, in France, restaurants can reopen. Wellness, well-being activities can reopen with certain rules. So, Emily has been working on a huge program, which is starting next week. It's never closed. It's never totally open. So we're going to celebrate a real opening. That's very exciting. It's an interesting model. And it seems like a combination of, I don't know, like a WeWork and neighborhood restaurant and maybe especially a coffee shop where people work in many coffee shops. Yes, it's a combination of all of that. Because WeWork, there is no emotion. I'm not you know, criticizing WeWork. It's a place mm -hmm. to work and people are in like group there. I must say, we've seen a few places in the U.S. with my daughter. We've seen a few in uh, Europe, including it goes back to the Greek. It was called the Agora. The Agora was the center part of the town where people right. would, would communicate, would collide, would meet. So it's yeah. a combination of an Agora and the lobby of, we talked about the Ace Hotel. Uh, or the lobby. Yeah. It's natural. Right. This lobby are people from the neighborhood, people staying in a room, people like you writing a book. That's what yeah, it is. All of that. And we think that we, in fact, we strongly believe that post, whenever it's post, pandemic is going to have a huge success. In fact, we've been approached by companies today who are telling us, listen, we understand that not everybody will go back to the office all the time. So uh, work back in the office where we can control what people do is over. Telling people two days a week you work at home and three days a week you work in the office is also obsolete. It has to be hybrid. And if we want to attract people back in the office, we have to provide them with wellness, well-being, intellectual activities, maybe a restaurant, whatever. And they are offering us to kind of manage part of their space for that and open the space also to the outside world to create those opportunities of collision. That's very interesting that they would want it kind of in-house but open at the same time. Yes. 
Very so, cool. And it's fantastic to work with my daughter, my son, who uh, happened to work in the hotel business by accident also, so that we had a lot of fun, so he joined us. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really family and it's fun. The only difference is the first time, which was late February, where I told my daughter that this crisis, this pandemic is going to be a serious crisis at the time. In February, remember, nobody believed it was serious. And I told her, maybe we're not going to be able to open, so you should work on a plan B. She screamed at me. (laughs) 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 Which normally another entrepreneur would not have done. But anyway. (laughs) They would like to have done it, that's for sure. But they don't. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, you... Unfortunately, you turn out to be right about that. So that'll be something to definitely follow. I think it's a very cool concept. And in in our point on branding and emotion, I saw the video and that does convey an emotion to the place. Oh, thank Um, you. Um, That's for sure. So, okay, last question, at least for this round. And in some ways you've been answering it all the way through, but it's about advice. But specifically, because you've been asked, I'm sure, and written about advice that you would give other people. But what advice would you give yourself? Early in your life, early in your career, when you were a young man, maybe 20, 25, early in your career, and you've learned a lot, obviously, but what did you not know then that you wish you did, or what advice would you have given yourself if you could magically go back in time to the uh, 21-year-old Philippe? Well, <laughs> I wish I could, by the way. Me too. Uh, I'm not sure I remember. No, I'm going to say I was really, top of advice, again, I was lucky enough to be working with those two people, Dubul and Pélisson, who were providing me with all the good advice and instead of criticizing what I was doing, making me better each time I was doing a little mistake. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about that. But what advice I gave to myself, listen to everybody, obviously. I always try to stay humble. We discussed about it also. No, but listening to people. You know, when you're young, You know, you think you have all the answers when you're young. And when you're old, you realize you don't have any answers. So (laughs) what about this point you mentioned about, you know, the straight line, right? Is that something you understood even that young, early in your career, that life and careers are not a straight line, that you should actually avoid that mindset? Well, yes, I strongly believed in it. But again, I believed in it because I was given a chance. And therefore, I knew and trusted my leaders that I would get somewhere The only time I really, it's not straight line, but I would have stayed in a Middle East Asia Pacific because I was about to be promoted as the boss. I was the head of development and I heard that they wanted to uh, open and start development in the United States. And uh, one of my dreams, we were talking about dreams, so it's not straight line, it's dreams. One of my dreams was one day to work in the U.S. I discovered the U.S. when I was very young with my father. Again, I spent six months in Austin, uh, Texas, and then another six months as an intern in Tucson, Arizona. This is back in the 70s, yes. And with my father, we would go at the head office of Caterpillar, which was in Peoria, Illinois. That's right. This is America. (laughs) That that is America. So anyway, I went to see Paul Dubuil, and I told him, America is for me. And he said, well, Philippe, we just promoted you. (laughs) (laughs) We just promoted you and there is no replacement for you while we have a candidate for the US. I did not obviously get upset at him, but when I left the meeting, I was kind of upset. But a week later, he called me back and he said, well, Philippe, we owed it to you. So you're getting America. However, here's what we're going to do. You know, Paul de Brule was trained Before he created Accor, he worked for a company called NCR, 
computers, in, cash yes. registers. And yeah, cash registers. Remember the old cash registers? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it was in uh, Dayton, Ohio. So he said, well, you're going to spend three months there as an intern next to the CEO. His name is Bernardo Trujillo. And after three months, you will tell me if you still want the U.S. And I will ask him if he thinks you can do it. So I went three months as an intern in Dayton, Ohio. I learned a lot, by the way. And fortunately, Trujillo said I was able to do it. And I was more motivated than ever to stay right. in the U.S. So It sounds like your boss, you know, at Acor is pretty clever, pretty oh, thoughtful. Oh, it was a hell of a boss, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, Philippe Bourguignon, thank you so much for chatting with me and uh, sharing so many interesting stories and ideas with our listeners on the SIDCast. I know that uh, we'll look for, and I'll ask you to come back again, because we left a lot of stuff on the side of the table that we never even got to, and there's still so much richness here. So thank you again. Be well, and I look forward to seeing you and your daughter, perhaps, at Le Shack one day. Thank you so much, Sid, for giving me the opportunity. I truly enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>